Welcome to this Cambridge University Press podcast. I'm Michael Watson, Executive Publisher for History at the Press. Today I'm talking to Stephen Broadbury, Professor of Economic History at the University of Oxford and the co-editor of the forthcoming two-volume Cambridge Economic History of the Modern World. This is the second of two podcasts um, discussing the two volumes with today's focusing on on volume two, which covers the period from 1870 to the present day. Many thanks, Steve, for joining me again. In our previous podcast, we discussed the first volume uh, on 1700 to 1870. And perhaps we could start with the relationship between the two volumes and how these fit together. Uh, Well, uh, volume one is organised around the themes of the emergence of modern economic growth, that is sustained growth of living standards without a decline in population, and also the great divergence of living standards between the West and the rest of the world. Volume two takes the story from around 1870 to the present, where the central theme is about the spread of sustained growth to more countries and what happened to the gaps in living standards between nations and continents. Yes, and you note in the introduction to volume two, there was great potential for closing the gap in living standards that that had opened up between the West and the rest of the world. But paradoxically, that gap continued to grow. What insights do the regional chapters offer into why catching up proved so elusive and why gains continue to be so unevenly distributed? Uh, Well, uh, as 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 we've uh, established, volume two begins in 1870 because by then modern economic growth had emerged in Britain and it had already spread to much of the rest of Western Europe and the British offshoots in the New World. That's the United States, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. It was also poised to begin in Asia following the institutional reforms in Japan associated with the Meiji Restoration of 1868. So as you said, there there was uh, therefore great potential during the period after 1870 for closing the gap in living standards that had opened up between the West and the rest of the world. And although many more countries have embarked on the process of sustained modern economic growth since 1870, um, the gap has nevertheless continued to grow during the long 20th century as catching up has proved elusive. Now, uh, the expectation of fast catch-up growth in poor countries um, is based on two ideas from economic analysis. Uh, The first one is that low levels of capital intensity mean a high rate of return on capital due to diminishing returns to capital. So if if the rich economies have got more capital, then they're running into diminishing returns in their investment projects. Um, So there should be higher returns in the poor economies that haven't got much capital. So you might expect international investors to want to pile into investing in the poor economies, they get more capital and they catch up. That's the basic idea. There's also on top of that, the idea that technological backwardness can give you large possibilities of leaps in productivity by simply jumping to the frontier. You don't have to go through all the intermediate steps that the pioneer economies went through. You move straight to the most effective technology. But as Moses Abramovitz uh, noted, rapid catching up can only be expected in economies with the right social capabilities. 
um, that's the term Abramovitz used, and by that he, he meant um, uh, things like um, education and having good institutions. So in practice, um, as Lance Pritchett famously noted, uh, the period since 1870 has been characterised by divergence big time. We haven't seen that convergence. So the theoretical ideas you know, give you this possibility, but it's not being uh, realised. Mm-hmm. And, and there's clearly been a huge amount of new data produced about economic growth in this period. Um, how, how has that affected the way that the story of regional developments can be told in part one? Um, well, um, in North America and Western Europe, from around 1870, most governments started collecting more economic data. And so for today's rich Western countries, these have now been utilised by economic historians to reconstruct a full set of historical national accounts. For the period since World War II, of course, you have the states producing and and publishing official national accounts. Uh, They can be decomposed by categories of income, expenditure and output, and also supplemented by data on many other variables. That, that can be used to evaluate the causes. So we have really a uh, terrific um, uh, supply of data for the post-1870 period for the rich countries compared with the, the pre-1870 pre period. Um, in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, um, reconstructing economic performance is more challenging, uh, largely because of the socialist experiment after the um, Russian Revolution in 1917, and then it spread to Eastern Europe in the post-World War II period. Um, so the, under the Soviet system, um, the official data um, on, on, on output were constructed in terms of net material product rather than gross domestic product, as in the Western uh, framework. And um, there are also serious distortions for propaganda purposes. Now, attempts were made uh, at the time by the CIA to construct more accurate series of output on a Western basis. And then since the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the collapse of the Soviet system, economic historians have been able to get access to to the archives and uh, build a more accurate picture of what actually happened. In East Asia, we have a similar problem with the Chinese economic performance. Uh, It's had to be reconstructed by Western economists, particularly after 1949. But economic historians have also had to do a lot of work on um, the late Qing dynasty and the rather weak Republican regime before the communist takeover. So uh, but there's been been a lot of work on on that. In South Asia, Indian GDP has been reconstructed from British colonial data. Um, that was uh, fairly extensively collected after the transfer of power from the East India Company to the Raj. Um, Latin American region also collected colonial data, but less systematically than the, the British North America. Uh, and that's made it harder to reconstruct economic activity there, but historical national accounts now exist for the major countries. Um, in the Middle East and Africa, until recently, there was relatively little quantitative work. Um, and um, uh, that's especially true for the period before World War II. 
Um, in the last decade or so, though, there's been a, a bit of a renaissance of the economic history of these regions, which has drawn on colonial data uh, for the pre-independence period. And so we, we, we now have a fairly good reconstruction of pretty much the whole world from 1870 to the present. Mm -hmm. and, and what does that tell us in terms of which regions made the greatest gains over this period? Um, well, let me start with the United States, which became the uh, leading economy uh, uh, for for most of this period. Um, so there's a catching up process of the United States uh, on Britain in the 19th century. Um, the precise dating of overtaking is, uh, is, is still some slightly controversial, but some, somewhere around about the end of the 19th century, the US emerged as the uh, leading economy and, and has pretty much remained that uh, ever since. Um, and that's in some sense surprising given the catch-up framework that I was explaining at the beginning of this talk um, uh, because the United States doesn't just catch up, it overtakes and forges ahead and becomes the new leader. So this is going beyond just catching up. Western Europe um, also uh, was a rapidly growing region throughout this period, although it fell behind the US between 1870 and 1913. So it wasn't catching up on Britain as fast as the US was. Um, there's uh, some recovery, uh, recovering ground between the wars, but then there's a big setback with World War II. Um, uh, so the US forges further ahead during World War II Europe is, has sort of extensive physical destruction and economic disruption. It's the main theatre of war. Um, then between 1950 and 1980, you get this period of strong West European catching up, the golden age, um, but they don't catch up um, in terms of GDP per capita to uh, close the gap completely. They, they, it tails off at around about 70% of the US level. Uh, for the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, well, there's a strong period of growth for the Soviet Union during the 1920s and 1930s, uh, but we have to remember that's following a catastrophic collapse during the First World War and then the Civil War after the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, but there is catching up um, during the 20s and 30s but then another major setback um, across World War II. There was some catching up during the 1950s, but it's not as rapid as in Western Europe. Um, and it tails off and effectively goes into reverse during the 1970s and 1980s. The Soviet system is, is struggling already by then. Uh, the system collapses in 1989 Follow, there follows a, a really sharp decline and the recovery has been quite slow so that actually Russia is further behind the US uh, today than in the 1880s. Uh, now in East Asia, of course, there is broad agreement that China continued to fall behind the United States until the late 1970s. And then we see this dramatic change, uh, huge catching up from the late 1970s um, following institutional reforms to liberalize the economy 
but whilst maintaining the leading role of the Communist Party. China was not the first of the uh, East Asian miracles. That really started with the dramatic recovery of Japan after World War II, sort of super growth of six, seven percent a year. Um, but of course, that built on the earlier transition to modern economic growth following the major restoration of 1868, which had been interrupted by this big collapse uh, during the war. The Japanese miracle was followed by a second wave of rapid catching up uh, in Asia by South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong and Singapore. They were known collectively as the newly industrializing countries or NICs. In South Asia, India has followed a similar trajectory to China. Falling further behind the US um, before entering a phase of rapid catch up growth from the early 1980s. The Latin American region as a whole has failed to catch up with the US over the long run, uh, but this hides some important variation in individual country performance. So Argentina and Uruguay were on a par with many West European nations in 1913. Uh, they were exporters of primary produce integrated into the global economy, but they then began a rapid relative decline as they turned inwards from the 1930s. By contrast, uh, you have Venezuela, which was relatively poor until the mid 1920s, but then caught up rapidly uh, on the back of oil resources. Uh, the whole region, of course, suffered a major setback with the debt crisis in the 1980s, leading to another lost decade. Although Africa has stood out as the world's poorest continent since the 1980s, this has not always been the case. So, for example, Africa was significantly richer than India and China between the 1930s and the 1970s. The Middle East began a period of catching up after World War II based on oil. And there's a dramatic acceleration of this process during the 1970s uh, as a result of a massive swing in the terms of trade brought about by OPEC, uh, the oil cartel, uh, although this was not sustained from the 1990s. So as, as is also the case in um, volume one, part two um, covers the factors that shape these different regional outcomes. And so to what extent were these the same factors as we saw in the earlier period or were these weighted differently? Yes, uh, so there's a sort of balance here. Although we adopt the same analytical framework as in volume one, distinguishing, distinguishing between the proximate and ultimate sources of growth, uh, the way that specific factors affected economic outcomes differed from the earlier period. Let me start with the proximate causes of growth. And we have sort of two chapters here, one on human capital and one on capital and technology. So um, with um, uh, human capital, <coughs> or this is a, in some sense a different aspect of the labor input that we focused on in volume one. Volume one focused on the increase in the number of workers as population increased. Um, but after 1870, there's been a demographic transition. Um, so uh, 
declining fertility and mortality. And um, families are focusing on having a small number of children in which there's they make a big investment in uh, in the in the human capital. Um, so the increase in the supply of labour really comes more from the quality rather than the quantity. Uh, and uh, the, the chapter in volume two therefore focuses on human capital and the investments needed to make the labour force healthy, literate and smart. Uh, in the chapter on the roles of capital and technology, we see that countries that were catching up often did so with high rates of investment in both physical and human capital. And this required high rates of saving compared with uh, what was happening during the Industrial Revolution period. Uh, sometimes, of course, it was possible for an, uh, an individual country to um, borrow from abroad as, as the economy globalised, uh, which you know, meant you didn't need to save, save uh, quite as much. Uh, but in general, it, it, there's more investment and that needs more saving. Um, and um, these high rates of investment facilitated the transfer of advanced technology from abroad, which required both high-tech machinery and the skills needed to operate it effectively. Turning to the ultimate causes of growth, um, we can start with geography. Um, while the effects of first nature geography on growth are most obviously seen in volume one through the effects of coal endowments, in volume two, the chief source of energy switches to oil. But perhaps the more significant conclusion is that second nature geography was becoming more important than first nature geography during the 20th century. Uh, a useful summary measure to capture second nature geography of a country or region is market potential. And this is measured by the sum of distance weighted GDP of all regions in the neighbourhood. So in other words, you're in a better position as an, as an economy if you're surrounded by other rich economies because there's people nearby that you can sell to. Um, and uh, the chapter illustrates uh, this with um, two case studies based on Japanese prefectures during industrialization, the period 1890 to 1940, and in Europe covering 173 regions over the period 1900 to 2013. So in Japan, the prefectures with the best market access, that is those surrounded by other prefectures with large numbers of relatively rich consumers, they're the ones that experienced the most rapid industrialization. And in Europe, market access was again important in explaining the differential prosperity of regions. Uh, now, as in volume one, uh, the chapter on institutions concludes that the transition to sustained economic growth requires the transformation of both political and economic institutions, widening access to economic rents underpinned by a move towards representative political institutions. This is building on the approach of North, Wallace and Weingast. It is nevertheless recognised that where a coalition of elites controls access to economic rents or profit opportunities, 
supported by a concentration of political power, you can still have economic growth for a while. But eventually, uh, it tends to get choked off as elite power comes under threat. So you know, move towards democracy uh, is helpful in underpinning growth, but we can't rule out the fact that there are um, periods of growth in uh, autocracies as well. Mm -hmm. um, now turning to the global economy as a whole, um, to what extent does volume two highlight uh, the sort of pace of change in the global economy since 1870 and its development as a global system? Uh, yes, the, the, the global economy became highly integrated between 1870 and 1913 as transport costs fell. There was trade liberalisation leading to a reduction in tariffs and other barriers. And there were few restrictions on international migration. And uh, this was a continuation of developments since around about 1820. Now, although there were already signs of a backlash against globalization before 1914, World War I led to a decisive reversal of market integration and really ushered in a long period of deglobalization across the two world wars and also between them. There then followed a period of re-globalization after World War II, which proceeded quite slowly at first, but then really accelerated from the 1980s. Interestingly, although world exports now account for a higher share of GDP than on the eve of World War I, the peak ratio of migration flows to population occurred during the early 1900s, before World War I. That indicates that, yes, goods market integration has continued to flourish, but labour market integration has stalled at the global level. The chapter on international finance offers three perspectives. First, it shows that international mobility of capital has followed the same U-shaped pattern I've just been spelling out, uh, high before World War I, uh, again since the late 1970s, but with a, a sort of intervening period of deglobalization uh, between and during the two world wars. And again, the, the re-globalization um, after World War II was quite slow uh, during the Bretton Woods period. The second thing it, uh, it um, focuses on is um, connecting the scale of capital flows with exchange rates and monetary policies using the idea of the trilemma. And this idea states that economic policy can at best achieve two out of the three policy objectives of free mobility of capital, exchange rate stability and monetary autonomy. And this trilemma is seen as helpful for understanding the choice of policy regimes adopted at different times in different places. The third perspective looks at the connections between international finance and economic and financial stability, asking whether pegged exchange rates and free mobility of capital are necessarily engines of instability, as has sometimes been argued. Uh, the final chapter is on warfare and empire. 
And um, by the late 19th century, a combination of military and economic advantages had enabled imperial powers to expand the territories and populations that they controlled to an unprecedented extent. On the one hand, this expansion of imperialism facilitated the global movement of people, goods and capital. So it's sort of good for globalization. But on the other hand, of course, it set up imperial rivalries that shaped the major conflicts of the 20th century. Uh, as I've just mentioned, World War One ushered in a period of deglobalization that lasted until after World War Two, as the liberal world order gave way to increased controls over the international movement of commodities, labor and capital. During the period of deglobalization, although there were growing pressures for reform and greater autonomy for the colonized peoples, there was also a move towards greater integration within each empire to counter the growing trend towards protectionism and autarkic commercial policies. If you couldn't trade with the rest of the world, you could trade with your own within your own empire. Uh, after World War II, by contrast, the return to globalization combined with the econ weaker economic and financial position of the victorious imperial powers led to a period of decolonization, effectively ending the global, global hegemony of Western Europe. However, the world then reoriented itself around two rival blocs led by the United States and the Soviet Union based on an ideological divide between capitalism and communism. Although the end of the Cold War after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the breakup of the Soviet Union initially reduced global tensions and led to reductions in defense spending, in the 21st century, tensions have, of course, resurfaced between the United States and Russia, while China has emerged as a new superpower. Many thanks, Steve, for those insights into the second volume, and indeed for the other podcast as well, which I'm sure many of our listeners will want to check out too. Those of you who now want to read the books themselves can do so here in the UK and Europe from the 24th of June and in the US and other parts of the world from late July. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.